I need you to grab your green sheet out of the bulletin. Last time I printed off a new one, and we used them for five minutes, and then we went upstairs and used others. We're going to use the same one. So, the green sheet, like we did last time. First of all, I want you to take a look at the hymn of the day. The hymn of the day for Advent 2 is the day is surely drawing near. Uh, this hymn is quite familiar to us. We've used it quite a bit. In fact, we use it uh, usually at the end of the church year. So we used it uh, in church already just about three Sundays ago. Um, it talks about the end times just as the season of Advent includes not only Christ's coming in the flesh, but it also speaks of Christ's coming again of the last day, the second coming, and it speaks about Christ coming to us uh, in the Word. If you take a look at our banners upstairs, they speak about those three things. With this particular hymn, though, and again, we don't have a lot of time, so I kind of rushed through it. I spent, oh, 15 minutes going over it on uh, Wednesday night at Catechesis. But the... Uh, with Lutheran worship, there were only four stanzas. This one has seven. Actually, the Lutheran hymnal before this had seven. Uh, Lutheran service book, which Missouri put out after this one, had seven. We're the only one that has four. This restores it to seven stanzas. Uh, the ones that were included were one, two, six, and seven. So the ones that... Uh, we get back at this point includes stanzas three, four, and five. Three, four, and five speak about a book. A book is open then to all, a record truly telling. Oops, move my cursor. What each hath done, both great and small, when he on earth was dwelling, and every heart be clearly seen, and all be known as they have been in thoughts and words and actions. Um, it speaks about a book there. Also then, in stanza number five, continues to talk about this when we get to stanza five, it speaks about the book of life. Revelation chapter 20 speaks about these things. I'm going to read 20, 11 to 15. Mm -hmm. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. That's the first reference. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's the second. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, just as the book of Revelation is speaking about things and often uses earthly images, uh, a couple things. One, it speaks of books or book before, where it talks about those things which men have done are written in these books, in the book. Um, 
And we talk about how there's going to be a judgment day on the last day. That judgment day, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and you're damned by not having faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, judgment day, as we looked at the end of the church year, the Lord gathers before us the sheep and the goats. He already knows who are the believers and who are the unbelievers. The sheep believe, the goats don't. But judgment day, in order to show everyone else, it's a day in which the works are proclaimed. That is, the works show whether you have faith. But what did we see with the sheep and the goats? The sheep, when he speaks about those, only thing that is mentioned is the good things that they have done. Nothing sinful, nothing evil, nothing about that is mentioned. Similarly, in these books, or in the book they're written, why aren't the sins of believers included? They've been forgotten. They've been forgiven. They've been forgotten. They've been taken away. Um, None of that will be mentioned on the last day. However, concerning the goats, only the sins. What about their good works? They don't have any. Good works, by definition, have to flow from faith, and without faith, they don't. So, this hymn, as well as Revelation 20, speaks about this books or books, and then finally it goes on to talk about another book, and this is called the Book of Life, and there is not written works or anything of that sort, it's simply written names. Uh, Those whose names are in the Book of Life, all believers then, are the ones who are saved, and this is the picture language it uses uh, to teach what in fact we have in uh, uh, this hymn, in these uh, stanzas that we now get, stanzas 3, 4, and 5, in addition to the others. Questions? Alright, go to the other part of your green sheet. Um, similar to last time, as we're learning some of these new chant tones, um, I'm going to do the uh, antiphon, uh, which is all the way to here. I'm going to do the psalm. You're going to start with the glory going through Amen, and then I'll sing uh, the antiphon upstairs. Uh, This is the way we'll do it upstairs as well as down here. Uh, Leanne will be playing with you um, uh, to help us with the notes. There is an, this called a beginning or an incipit um, uh, that goes... And then there is the chanting line that goes with it. Um, I'll use that. Anything that's before the double line will use that. The Gloria uh, Patri does have that for the glory and the as it. When we get down to the gradual, there is no incipit. We'll simply be starting off uh, with that one. All right, let's go through it. Um, listen until we get to here, and then join me with the glory. Daughter of Zion, behold thy salvation cometh. The Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard, and ye shall have gladness of heart. 
Give ear, O Shepherd of Israel, Thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I'm going to skip that antiphon just for the sake of time, and we're going to do the gradual. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has I'm sorry, that was the one I was going to tell you about. <laughs> um, uh, so here's what goes on. Um, the hour goes with this one here. Normally when they have a, a break, you go ahead and slur the note uh, that, I'm sorry, it goes right here. Uh, usually you slur the note that goes after it, but, um, so we're going to go, Our God shall come. So this hour is also going to go down to this F, which would have a syllable there, and it doesn't. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Our God shall come. Let's go back to out of Zion. Out of Zion, the bread of beauty, God has shined. How our God shall come. Can I stay together, come to me. Those that I have with me by sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The powers of heaven shall be taken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Hallelujah. All right, put those green sheets back in the bulletin. The elders are going to pick those up so we can use them upstairs in just a bit. You've got a white sheet in front of you, a white sheet that says Unity, a New Direction with the 1960s. Um, I instructed them not to staple those together because if you, uh, later, we're going to set side by side two different approaches to Scripture, okay? Um, I'm going to do my best to kind of... Uh, rush through some of the history. Um, again, I, I'm not trying to bog down in it, but there are things that we need to understand historically, kind of broad strokes of how things are, uh, are and have progressed. Uh, a little bit of, of review. Uh, going back to, we had part five last time. Uh, what was going on? 
we talked about how the brief statement of 1932 was probably the, uh, due to things that had been going on, it was the conservatives saying, wait a minute, this has been our doctrine all along. But the reason they had to speak up is because the things that already started to uh, have an effect uh, upon that. That was 1932 with the brief statement. Talks between the new American Lutheran Church and the Missouri Synod resumed in 1935. So we talked about how Missouri was talking with this new ALC, which began in 1930, and they were having talks. They focused upon the brief statement. Uh, the ALC produced something called the Minneapolis Theses, and they were talking about these two things. In 1938, representatives of two bodies came together, uh, and they put together something called the Sandusky Declaration to supplement some of the stuff that had gone on by the Missouri Senate Convention in 1938. They declared that both the brief statement and the Sandusky Declaration could be the basis for altar and pulpit fellowship uh, and said, well, there was some disagreement, but it was non-fundamentals and they were pushing forward. In 1950-53, uh, a document was produced, and we talked about that, called A Common Confession. They had, the first part was pretty good. The second part was actually in complete disagreement with the first part. Um, but they published them together, and they uh, uh, used them kind of going forward. But by about uh, 1956 or so, Due to the reactions from the other members of the Synodical Conference, Wisconsin, ELS, and some of those, who had rejected the Common Confession, talk stalled. So that kind of gives you a little bit of idea with um, uh, Missouri and, and how they were uh, progressing. Um, I'm going to quote from a book, Breath of God, Work of Man, yeah, Work of Man, similar to what I told you before. During the post-war era, that is, after you know, the 19, in the 1920s going into the 30s, progressives began to express themselves formally and openly in the Missouri Senate. And I talked about how in 1948, there was, or 1945, there was the statement, a statement it's called, it's the statement of the 44, in which they rejected many things that Missouri had held up before. Um, and how that uh, was backed down in convention. They withdrew their, their paper and they said, well, we'll study it. I talked about how that document had emphasis on mission and on uh, love. Uh, there was a lot dealing with uh, heart language. Um, that was uh, kind of where we kind of left things. I'm going to come back to uh, the history that goes forward with that next time. At this point, what I want to get you historically here, I want two things. Historically, I want to take you from um, about the 1940s and 50s 
And then, on the back of the second page, uh, everyone else in Lutheranism got together in the 1960s. We have the American Lutheran Church, and we have the Lutheran Church of America, the ALC and the LCA. We're now getting into the history where I think some of you are going to go, Oh, yeah! That's my church body. That's what I grew up in. Or that, you know, you're going to start to see some of that. I'd like to bump up into that historically, and then I'm going to go back and pick up what was going on with Missouri next time. Uh, I'm trying to kind of push forward with it. Next time, I'd love to get the 60s, even the 70s, which has Seminex, the walkout, uh, some of these things. That's probably a little ambitious, but, but we'll see. Um, the second thing that I want to get together, uh, that I want to go through today, is something called the historical critical method, um, and that's going to involve these two sheets. So, let's see if I can get it done. Good luck. All right. Um, when I talked about how, in the 1930s, the ALC came together, and then, as we're looking at this and we're going, wait a minute, we kind of had three different groups and it appeared that, you know, yeah, we had the liberals and we had kind of the moderates and we had the conservatives and then all of a sudden, um, all of these others started to come together. What, what happened? Um, here are the things that happened in very broad strokes. Um, one, as we've talked about before, following the... Uh, First World War, and then we're going to see now if the Second World War, 1939, uh, we come into it, 1941, um, goes through 1945. Following that, uh, the Lutherans are trying to deal with their kids going off to service, and the fallout from war and, and helping in social things, um, they started to form things like the National Lutheran Council. That already goes back to 1918. It ends wrapping up by about 1967. Um, Missouri kind of held out uh, of that. Uh, as things move forward, we're going to see that um, they helped to found, although it kind of overlaps a bit, but they helped to found what was called the Lutheran World uh, conference. Uh, the successor then to this National Lutheran Con uh, Council, which is still in existence, is called the Lutheran World Federation, um, beginning in 1947. As these Lutherans got together, um, the Lutheran World Federation was described as a free association of Lutheran churches. Well, uh, um, it was intended to bring all the Lutherans together, to work together in this, and usually they would say, well, we can't cooperate in uh, things that would involve fellowship kind of issues, but we can work together in other things which don't uh, impinge upon the confession that we're all united. So maybe we can't have joint worship together, or we can't commune together, but when it comes to 
sending food and clothing to service people. I, I, yeah, we can work together in that. In fact, I can work together with the Baptists. I can work together with the Atheist Association. You know, if they want to help get food over to people that are starving, we can do that. Often that is described as cooperation in externals, external to the fellowship. And so then I guess you could say the words internal. Um, and so, at least at the beginning, as things are going to it, don't worry, it's a free association uh, of Lutheran churches. How can we work together externally without, uh, um, in issues in which we're not in altar and pulpit fellowship? Okay. Um, it proved to be more of a problem than you would ever know. Um, and so, how do you do this? And... If you set up a, and we're going to come down to things like uh, service centers, I don't know where I put those, somewhere along the way, uh, we're talking about chaplaincy, um, it may be that someone wants to be quite faithful to their confession, and over here they might not commune together, but a chaplain may not ask those questions and on the field and in those things. Um, what do they ask you? Are you Protestant, Lutheran, or Roman Catholic? Oh, you're Lutheran? Great, you go to this one. And things happen. In addition to that, um, those who were involved in this didn't much care. They called it this for the sake of trying to pull in the Missouri and Wisconsin but they themselves, it didn't really matter. And so what did we find? Um, we find that one of the first uh, conventions that they had, 1947, was in Lund, uh, Sweden, is, when, is where they said, hey, let's all work together. And, well, they started to. In 1952, uh, there was another Lutheran World uh, Federation meeting. Uh, that was in, uh, oh, what are the three? There's three of them. Hanover is in 1952, 47, 50, <coughs> um, no, 47, 50 and 52, I think it was. Um, anyway, um, uh, one of the representatives of the Lutheran World Federation described it this way. He said, in 1947, we learned to work together. In 1950, we learned to pray together. And in 1952, we learned to think together. And that's pretty well what happened. It was in 1952 that, uh, uh, <laughs> that already those in LCMS, Wisconsin, whatever, said, yeah, we can't continue with this Lutheran World Federation and they formed their own thing called the International Lutheran Council in order to allow them to do similar things that was going on. But that doesn't happen until 52. Um, and you can see that uh, things have been going on for quite a while. Um, there's world relief. There's other things. The point being is this. The world war itself, but particularly this idea of international 
work. Prior to that, we were working with people that are with us. Now we're working with people all over the world. And that was an important thing. And the more they did that, the more the interaction, the more, and they weren't ready for it. That's one part. Second thing, ecumenical movement or unity movement. What is ecumenical? It means working together. It means striving for unity. There was an ecumenical movement uh, just as... Uh, you want, I'm going to say parallel, the, world, the nations getting together and finally the United Nations and the League of Nations and the United Nations. Yeah, we had World Conference on Faith and Order, 1937, Hindenburg. Uh, uh, 1936 at the Lutheran World Convention, uh, one of the presentations was about Lutherans and the ecumenical movement. What were Lutherans as they got involved with this, people were saying, hey, there are Lutherans all over the world. We need to be united. We need to get together. We, In fact, now that we've talked with other people, we found that these other Christians are a lot like us. We all need to be united. We need to work towards this. And so, instead of talking about doctrine, instead of talking about teaching, they began to say, uh, let's talk about the body of Christ. Let's talk about all the things that unite us and not talk about the things that, that don't. Um, most Lutherans joined the World Council of Churches. Again, this is not just Lutheran, but even uh, out. Um, even the ELC, uh, the Norwegian Lutheran Church, which ends up going into it, uh, they did, but not until 1956. This, between the 40s and 50s, there's a lot of trying to figure out, waiting for a while, then finally going in. Things were, uh, were changing. But what about, Pastor? You told me all about this Lutheran confessions and how pretty well the ALC came to put that into their constitution. Even the LCA did. And so everybody had the confessions in their constitution. Now, granted, some didn't quite tell us whether they viewed those confessions as a nice history lesson. Some said, we use those as regulating our life in the church. Some said, we like those insofar as they agree with Scripture. There was a lot of interpretation, but there, it was all there. One of the things, and again, did they quote the Lutheran confessions? Oh, yes, they did. Um... For example, Augsburg Confession, Article 7. One of the sentences in there says, For it is sufficient for the true unity of the Christian church that the gospel be preached in conformity with a pure understanding of it and that the sacraments be administered in accordance with the divine word. And some came and said, Well, if we're talking about unity, and we're talking about ecumenical movement, and we're all trying to get together, they cited Augsburg Confession saying, our own confessions say, in order to have true unity, you just have to have the gospel and, and the sacraments. That's the minimum. And so, where that is, well, we're good. And so they started getting together. <coughs> 
Well, if you read the whole thing, that's not exactly. In fact, you know, this has been understood in about four different ways uh, um, uh, throughout uh, uh, history. Uh, some have used this not just as a uh, uh, minimum. Some have said, well, as long as the... Uh, uh, as we have the gospel the some have said, well, as long as you have the gospel uh, um, and the sacraments, the other things don't matter. Some have said it's more of a, and in the context, it's a maximalist approach. In other words, it's not saying this is the minimum. It's saying this is the agreement where the gospel is rightly understood everything else that is doctrinally will fit together in this one thing and the sacraments will be administered rightly and what it's saying is we don't need for true unity adiaphora traditions and all to agree we simply need to agree on and this was a definition of the scriptures not just a part of the scriptures but all of the scriptures but this was one of the ways in which this ecumenical movement, this unity, this trying to unite together, and I'm telling you they were crazy about it. Everything was about trying to get together. And that's what happened in the 1960, 1962, 63 with ALC and LCA. We're also going to see that it affects Missouri. I'm not going to get to that till next week. They didn't agree on the in accordance part and the divine word part. What does it mean to be in accordance? And is it the word divine? Is it God's word? They were already so disagree. They were in such disagreement about those two things that the previous part of the sentence, it they couldn't get there. Correct. Because they didn't believe the words meant the same thing. Correct. And so with many of these things, the literal is right. The definition of the words and how you interpret it, you know, that's a different story. What was the other thing? Missions. Mission movement. Uh, in connection with ecumenical, we're going to go out to the world. We're going to have missions. Mission movements began in the 1920s. It reaches its zenith in 1946 to 1952. But once again, guess what? There was this idea that, you know what? We need to have a reorientation concerning world missions. We need to reimagine missions. How had missions gone on before? Missions had gone on before, usually in three areas. In the church, in the school, and in the hospital. In the church, you had preaching. That is, you had worship. In the school, you had teaching. Teaching of the faith. And in the hospital, you had healing. And the church had rightly said, we're going to have a part in all of these. Mostly this happened through uh, uh, sending out trained men, pastors, to do mission work, to preach the word, gather together those who held to that word, and then form a congregation and all. No, 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 as we start to go out with world missions, we don't need pastors, we can just have laymen do it. And as we started to go out, we said, well, you know what? Um, as they go out, we've begun to realize that other religions also, um, uh, I, I don't want to put them down, so we'll kind of enculturate some of their things. So if, you know, in, in some cultures they have 
of the beating of the bongo drums, we'll just start incorporating that into our our service. And if they offer fruit to their God, well, we'll let that fruit be put up on all our altar, and it'll be offered to our God. And well, then, well, there was a lot of mixing regarding these kind of things. This reorientation just uh, um, said, you know, oh, the, the problem with us is just culture. We're just too Americanized. That's the problem, and we need to leave behind the American culture of, 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 of having an altar and pews, and in other cultures, they raise their hands, and, and they dance around, and so when Lutherans go over there, we can do it that way. We'll just leave. Um... Adolf A. Brooks, I could spend an entire Bible study. Um, LCMS pastor uh, went over to India in 1924 uh, and uh, engaged in a prayer service with the Presbyterians. By the time that, uh, um, and that, uh, the other missionaries that were there with him said, hey, wait a minute. Um, are, are you having a, a joint prayer service, you know, with the nun? And continued to do this. By the time that he came back, he was used as an example, and there was charges of heresy. We see it happen in 1935 in convention, in 1938. Um, this is the man who, in, in all the books, is, is held up as uh, the moderate who is going to change the definitions of fellowship and unionism against what Missouri had done before. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that go on with this, but um, uh, he's the one who did it. In fact, um, well, anyway, changes in mission, and with changes in missions, changes in fellowship and how you view things, um, there was a change. Uh, uh, Oliver Harms was elected in 1962. Um, by the time that uh, uh, he's towards the end of his presidency, speaking back, <coughs> what was the most important thing that happened? It's missions. Um, it's not much different today. Uh, we're talking about the Billy Game revivals. Uh, although the conservatives had questions about the practice and how it was done, most of them worked with it. Most of them, Billy Graham came to town, all the churches came, and they all went. And if people came forward afterwards, you were one of, you know, Baptist minister and Lutheran minister and president, they all came down to help and to talk to them and to help uh, um, uh, these who were giving their life to Jesus. Um, it was involved. Uh, you also had the flight to the suburbs. Um, going back to uh, the GI Bill, uh, as the veterans came out, some of the Lutheran colleges, campus ministries became big, um, and there was an uptick or revival in the 50s of those attending church. Church services and, and attendance of people joining church went up um, after the war, and uh, that was seen as a significant uh, thing. The last Thing, and this is what I wanted to get to as well today, is hermeneutics. That is, how do, what are the principles by which you study the scriptures? Okay? 
the principles by which you study the scriptures is called hermeneutics. Um, something called the historical critical method has become the new standard tool for interpretation. I'll take a look at that and show. Um, it was a problem. It didn't sound like it at first. The scriptures are being viewed by their Christ-centeredness, by their soteriological character, by their saving Uh, and these scriptures would be normative for the faith and life of the church. All pretty good sounding stuff. Until you see what's exactly going on. As this stuff had already, I talked about it back in the 20s, but by the time you get to the 40s and 50s, it's going on, you know, over half are doing this, and the Lutherans who have gone overseas, who have had a lot more interaction and are now trying to compete in scholarship with others, are engaging in this. Um, LCA probably has been doing it for a long time. ALC was doing it. We're going to find that Missouri was divided on it. I'm going to look at that um, in just a bit. So, historically, what's going on? By 1942, the ALC conference has a commission on Lutheran unity. Every church had, oh, this is the new thing, Lutheran unity. They were spurred on. The Augustana Senate, uh, which was involved with the LCA, was that. What did they want to do? They wanted to negotiate, the Minneapolis Convention, negotiate and invite all in the pulpit and altar fellowship. Let's all get together. That was their stated goal. Uh, the United Lutheran Church, they got a commission on relations to American Lutheran church bodies. What had they concluded? Well, in 1945, they said, you know what? The Minneapolis Theses, which the ALC put together, and the Brief Statement, which Missouri put together, and the Pittsburgh Agreement with the ULC and the ALC had agreed on, you know what? They're all pretty good. We ought to have pulpit and altar, pulpit and altar fellowship. Um, the amount of agreement that we have is a whole lot more than we disagree on. And so, absolutely, they're moving forward and inviting anyone and everyone to do that. The ALC Conference of 1949 uh, proposed uh, an organic union already at this point. It did not materialize until 1960, but uh, they were talking about this, and it just took a while for them to convince the people and to move forward, but they did. In 1955, the United Lutheran Church in Augustana also issued a call for organic unity. One of the uh, uh, papers that went forward talked about the true principles of unity and truth, and that was going to be the basis of their coming together. We need to hold up the truth, but we need to have unity and unite, and we need to hold up both of these, and, well, then they move forward and... No, it did that. In 1960, the American Lutheran Church uh, uh, then took the other members of the American Lutheran Conference and they formed the American Lutheran Church 1960. So the ALC plus the ALC became the ALC. It's a little bit confusing. That being said, uh, these four came together. The only one that didn't was the Augustana Lutheran Senate. And you say, why? Because they were so conservative? 
No, they were so liberal and they were upset that they didn't get everybody else in that they went down here and joined together in 1962 and 63 with the Lutheran Church in America and came together with all of these. After 1962-63, by the time we get to that, we pretty well have all of the United Lutheran came into this, and everyone else that was in the ALC comes into this, and then you've got the Synodical Conference. Now, I've mentioned before, and, and just kind of a summary of things, I know that there were three distinct camps as organizational-wise. So in my diagram, you know, you've got the ALC, and that was kind of one group. I know you've got the LCA, and that was all one group. And then you have uh, what looked like the uh, Synodical Conference, and that's all one group. And so you could do... That being said, there were... Old Lutherans and New Lutherans. And it just didn't matter what Senate you were in. It was all going on at the same time. Um, and so, let's see. Pastor, can I ask you a question? Yes. By, by Old Lutherans and New Lutherans, you mean? The Old Lutherans were those who upheld biblical inerrancy. Oh. Bible was inerrant and inspired. And they sought to re-Christianate Lutheran orthodoxy. Continue the teaching. The Neo-Lutherans, those who sought contemporary theology, and they were using the historical method, the historical critical method of interpretation. That's what I mean about the old and the new or the Neo-Lutherans uh, that, that are going on. That's what's that's what's happening. That's my history. Let's take a look. Historical critical method. I have got for you two sheets, and I probably should have redone this, but I just copied these off. Um, I've used these before. Uh, one of them says presuppositions and hermeneutical principles inherent in the historical critical method, HCM. That's the one. The other one says presuppositions and hermeneutical principles of the historical, grammatical, contextual, theological method. Okay. Both of them say historical. Right? They don't disagree that the Bible came to us in history came to us in a particular time. One is concerned about critical. We're going to criticize the text. The other method says, we're trying to figure out what the text is, so we're going to use not only history, we're going to use the grammar, the grammatic, grammatical, we're going to use the context of the words that came before and those of after, and we're going to use theology in order to determine. That is the way that the old Lutherans did it. Okay? But the historical critical method, we're going to see, departs from that. This is what is finally, when we get to Seminex in the 1970s, and we have the Seminex break off and the walkout at the seminary, one group was using the historical critical method, and one was using the old method. 
Um, Seminex was using the new method and ended up leaving Missouri. We'll get to that with the studies. But these are the two uh, methods that are being used. I do have somewhat of a summary, as it lists here. It talks about them both using the history. But here, let me just use these as a summary, and then I'll get to a couple of these. The historical critical method starts from the assumption that the Bible should be treated as all other human writings. Your historical critical method, number one, says what? The Bible is a human book and can be treated like any other book. In fact, because it's a human writing, it should be interpreted critically using reason in a magisterial way. Mag a magister is a boss. So you use reason to judge the scriptures. In the other method, you use reason as a servant to try to figure out what it means. But this puts reason above scriptures. With the magisterial use of reason, the interpreter sits in the judge's seat, critically analyzing the testimony given by the Bible in the witness seat, determining whether what the witness says is true or false. So you look at the Bible and go, huh, well, I wonder if that really happened or not. Well, it says that Moses uh, had ten plagues, and uh, he turned uh, the, wa uh, the water in the Red Sea with water in the Nile into blood. Well, I don't think that's possible. So I think it just, there happened to be red algae that, that, at that point. And, and it was only, and so you might judge what it says um, and say, no, it probably didn't happen that way. Maybe it's, it's this. The conclusion of many modern biblical scholars is that the Bible often gives false testimony about who wrote its books or was involved in the events described, or it gives false testimony about what actually happened in the events, or even when the books were written and the described events. So the task of the historical critic is to find the nuggets of truth scattered in the written material. I know at first you look at this and go, wow, that just sounds so crazy. I mean, who would, who would do that? Let me explain it to you in, in, in this way. I, so, the Bible records the events of, of history. It, it records religious events of God. It records events of God working with people and nations and prophets and and. That's what the Bible is. Now, here's the difference. <laughs> On the one hand, we would say, this is the inspired and inerrant word of God to us. Historical critical method says, oh yes, God worked with men and with people and in certain times. And this is a record of their inspired and inerrant work of God. But it's only a record. The event was good, but how they recorded it, well, they're just humans like we are. So we have to kind of figure out what part of their record was good or, or not. 
So if you take a look at the historical, how am I doing? Ooh, we've got 10 minutes. Okay. Historical critical methods. Let's take a look at some of those. Uh, what are some of the things that they include? Um, they include... The Bible's a human book. Treat it like any. The human side of the Bible is the only legitimate area. Um, and thus, their historical critical method is the only way to look at it. So here's what has to happen. The interpreter of the Bible is required to suspend his personal religious convictions as he follows these processes or steps in any given uh, study of the Bible. So yes, you might have beliefs, but just forget all of that. We've got to come at it from a blank slate. The consistent application of these tools is what matters. Um, what do you have to do? As you use this, it can help provide the legitimate questions that address in it. Uh, the books of the Bible are simply units. Uh, each unit has its own independent history. Um, it's just human writings. And so, if, if you think that they all have to agree, that's not true. Um, in fact, the canonical text, the Bible as we have it, is really composed of layers of tradition. It's like an onion. And they can be peeled away. And so, we have the uh, writings that we have here, and then you can kind of like peel that away to get to what, what really happened. Um, and so, you might have, um, again, the record is written down that Moses turned the water in, into blood. But you peel that away and you kind of go, well, what really happened was there was algae at that particular, red algae, and it happened at that point, and they thought that this was God working. Um, and, and you slowly pull it back. Um, the New Testament, it's a later development. Um, if you think that you can use the New Testament to common comment upon the Old Testament if the New Testament says that's, you know, uh, this is the way it was, that New Testament is just like you and I, they don't know um, the New Testament is a later development, 12, Jesus Christ accommodated himself to the exegesis, the thought patterns the understanding of history of the first century um, even though Jesus says that Moses said this and wrote this it's not that he thinks Moses was a real character. He knew that wasn't the case. He was just accommodating himself to the way that people spoke at that time. Um, if he had lived during our time, you know, he would speak differently. Um, finally, number 14. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is simply the norm of the Bible. That's what's most important in this. So that there may be other things that are written down, but if they don't get to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, well, then that's not that important. Um, there's a lot of things that you can push away on this. Mary? Would you say more about number six? Um, I don't get that at all, I don't think. Good. All right, so let me give you an example. Um, uh, the St. Paul speaks about uh, the uh, a woman should be silent in the church. Um, a text that deals with male headship as dealing in particular with 
uh, men being in the pastoral office and not being open to women. The historical critical method will come to you and say, you might think that that is the legitimate question. But no, the historical critical method is going to allow you to understand that St. Paul, in his culture, you know, females couldn't own property and whatever, so he is just trying to uh, accommodate himself to the culture of the day. And so the historical critical method is going to let us know that the real legitimate question that we need to ask is, was Paul a male chauvinist? And then the historical critical method is going to answer that for you and tell you, yes, he was, but if he had lived today, he wouldn't be. Now, you know, I'm not... I watched the historical critical method take one of my grandmothers and who was a, a um, you know, Bible-believing, you know, straight-laced Christian, and as she was in the United Churches of Christ, and as they went and used the historical critical method, she came to explain to me one weekend that I was there, that the last time they were in Bible study, they were taking a look at what Paul said, and they had determined that Paul was a male chauvinist. And they had determined that that was, you know, and went on. And I can tell you, before she died, you know, they had a lesbian pastor. And she stayed. Um, You know, this rips apart the basis of your faith. Yeah, Um, how do those two things comport what you just said. Well, I, I, okay. Um, yeah, that's a long process. Let me let me give you the... Uh, yes, Stephen. Well, I just think this would be better titled instead of historical critical method and self-absorbed method. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, yeah. Self-absorbed. Um, you're, you're exactly right. Now, it is. I mean, because when I read the Bible, I mean, there's, you know, I understand, but there's a lot of times I don't understand. And I just had, you know, the Bible is, you know, absolute. And just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that I get to interpret it in a way that my mind can understand it. So you're already telling me that the scriptures themselves are above your reason. If I don't understand it, it still must be the word of God, and God must know more than I am. Right. For the historical critical method, they left that behind and said, absolutely not. Yeah, I have to understand it because I know everything. Right. 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 Or, you know, in their view, the men who wrote these books are no different than I am. They didn't know anything more than I do. So all of us are kind of ignorant. It's worse than that, though. All people in history are stupider than you. You have to have that assumption. Right. They didn't know of blood looked like, obviously. I mean, uh, <laughs> right. Algae blood. Uh-huh. <laughs> what I don't understand from this viewpoint is if they're going to throw out three fourths of the Bible, how can they say that the salvation part is correct? Uh-huh. What's the point? Well, that's the most important part. Until well, so how did it start? Well, it started with scholarship. It started with we want to produce stuff that other people will read and we want to be respected in communities and so they're all using you know uh, uh, the historical critical method we're going to use it 
and that's what they did. And and in some ways they said, ah, we we began to learn something, you know. And and so whether it was red algae or blood, what does it really matter? And they would kind of go on, and you know, it, it would be, oh, I've never heard that before. And everybody likes something new, you know. And so then it, it kind of goes on, and and so um, that's the way it started. And then things began to, you know, so you deny one thing, well, then it knocks over another. And like those dominoes, there's one after another. Pretty soon it starts to knock everything over and you go, well, wait, you know. But they kept saying, but no, we've got the gospel. We're not losing Jesus. You know, it's only those fundamentalists that are so crazy about inerrancy. But, you know, the point of the Bible is that, you know, we're all sinners and we're saved by Jesus. So they believe that part of the Bible, but they don't believe the rest of the Bible. But by the time you get to 1980s, 90s, you know, by the time you get to Seminex in the 70s, you had pastors who preached. Um, they were careful, because most of the people still believe in the resurrection. But you had a pastors that would preach on the resurrection. They preached about the open tomb. They didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. But when the, we got, they got there, the tomb was empty. I don't know how. Of course he didn't rise from the dead. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing. So, yes, you can see where this goes. At the time, did they see where it went? I don't know. But it was already happening. Um, Karn? Um, I was in a Bible study. It was a Missouri church at the time when I was in Missouri. And a female member of the church made the declaration that she thought that Paul was a male chauvinist. And I was I was taken back by it. I think probably others were also. Pastor did not address it. I kind of, but I didn't either. You know, I mean, it was just let go and was never addressed. Should have been, whether, probably by the pastor, but, you know, I'm at fault too. I didn't do anything either. But you know what? We just kind of let it slide. And I think now I definitely would say something, but I was pretty young then and didn't, you know, you can see how it's like, well, let me just make a statement. Like, well, what can I say to not look like a woman hater? And, (laughs) you know, I mean, do I really want to go there? Um, You can see how it it works its way in and Mm -hmm. it's like a poison. Brian? At the end of the day, you really can't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And mm-hmm. if you don't believe that, that's okay. You, know, you can think about that however you want. So they say they held the gospel. I don't, I don't see it. Right. Notice it's in parentheses. Number 14 is in parentheses. That means my, nothing. My point, and again, I, I have done studies on this once before. Um, I could do a whole thing on My point with this was the World War, the 1920s, the great changes that went on, and world. The ecumenical move, the unity, the desire to be together, to have a larger group, to not just be, oh, we've got to, the idea of missions and reaching out to others, and finally the change in the way you view the scriptures themselves. I was asked once, I don't know, last Sunday or the Sunday before, you know, how did we get from 1930 to 1960? You know, it was already going on, but when these things, it caused you to, you no longer ask the questions. 
you know, you know, before, is there an inerrant word? And this, we're not even talking about that anymore. At this point, we're all talking about missions. We're all talking about unity and getting together. And don't worry, we're all talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The language changed. And so, you, it's, it's not that you, you know, we, we had something that was important, and we knew that we disagreed upon it. But now we're talking about, do we still have this? Yeah, but we don't talk about that anymore. We're all talking about this. In fact, the more we talk about this, the less we even remember. And now, pretty well, we're all together. That's my point, is that these kind of things. Now, that being said, do we still have the ecumenical movement? Yes. Do we still have missions being the thing? Yes. Do we still have this particular method being used? Outside of most of the conservative, yes, pretty well, it is understood. That's the way it's done. All those things are still going on. Um, you know, even, I didn't get into it, even in the 1920s, the liturgical movement, the return to the more traditional, it wasn't by the conservatives, it was done by the liberals. Why was it done? So that we're all doing the same thing, whether we all believe the same thing or not. You know, so interesting enough. When conservatives started to follow the traditional things, they looked at us and said, wait a minute, are you guys liberals? Because you're, you're, you're wearing pyramids, you know, you're wearing vestments, and you're doing Oh, that's my point with this. Um, I know I'm out of time, but that gets me to why these things led to the 1960s and these going together. Um, we're going to see that it did have an effect, and we're going to move forward with it next time, um, because the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod um, and the other confessionals got together in something called the LCUSDA, um, and then we're going to see about the dialogue that happened, and I'm going to move forward with the 1970s, 60s, 70s, and, and push into that. Um, Pastor, did you have... Well... My only comment is, when you think about what's happening here, think about in the secular world, we used to talk about weather. Now we talk about climate change. <coughs> and the religion. Oh. Change of terms. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And it is your word which you have given us, inspired and inerrant. Um, we can trust those words which tell us about our Savior, Jesus Christ, exposing our sin and giving us forgiveness. We ask, dear Lord, uh, that we might hold to your word. And as your son has said, then we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.